We're going to be reading from Galatians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 15, and we'll be reading through the end of the chapter. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law, then? It is added because of transgressions, and having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise has been made. Now, a mediator is not for one, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, the righteous would indeed have been based on law. But the scriptures has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized unto Christ have been clothed, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the ability to come and worship you freely and publicly. I pray that you would be with Tom and with us as we hear what you have um, prepared him to present. Amen. Good morning. This is a long passage and there's a lot in it. And I tried to break it up into more than one message and I gave up because the end of the passage is is tied so critically to the beginning. So I'll tell you this uh, in advance, this will not be my shortest message, but I'll try not to make it my longest. On the very first page of the first chapter of his book simply titled Humility, the 19th century preacher and author Andrew Murray says this, Humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is from the very nature of things the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature, and the root of every virtue. Humility is not so much a grace or virtue along with the others. It is the root of all, because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows Him as God to do all. Our passage this morning is about God's promise to do all for us in Christ. And it's also about the unexpected instrument that God uses to humble us, 
to break us of ourselves in order to make us true heirs of His glorious promise. The only way we can ever be heirs, and that is by faith in the One who does it all. I'm going to give you a quick overview of where we're going this morning. The title is Heirs According to Promise, Not Law. Paul provides a couple of important sort of stage-setting statements in verses 15 and 16, and then in verse 17 he gets, gets into his making his case in earnest. And the first part of his case is that the law does not negate the promise. The law given through Moses does not negate the promise given to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. The second main point of his case is that the promise excludes the law. We'll see what he means by that. And then he comes to a very critical question. Why the law then? What is God's purpose for giving the law if it does not accomplish what so many expected it to accomplish? And then finally, the promise is fulfilled in the person. And the person is Jesus Christ. And you'll see these points uh, as we proceed. First, he gives us an important preface in verses 15 and 16. And that preface comes in a couple of parts. First, in verse 15, you cannot change or add to a covenant once it's ratified. He starts with human covenants and just makes a general sort of a statement about covenants. He says... Once a covenant has been ratified, no one gets to set it aside or add conditions to it. Now, this is a simple, straightforward statement. When a covenant agreement between parties is signed, ratified, by all the parties concerned, it's settled. And no one can come back later and switch things around or add to that covenant. Paul, having then made that general statement about covenants, proceeds to talk about the most foundational covenant in the Old Testament, the one upon which all the others are built. And that's the covenant that God made with Abraham. In the previous passage, Paul declared that all who seek to be justified by the works of the law are cursed. Law-keeping can never make a person righteous in the eyes of God. And then he said that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And at the very end of that last passage in verse 14, he presented the goal of Christ's redeeming work on the cross. He said Christ became a curse for us in order that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That verse is a critical lead-in to everything that he's about to say here. Now in verse 16, Paul refers again to God's covenant promise to Abraham. And he makes a very important statement, but he sort of baits us (laughs) and holds off on explaining it until later. He says that the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And then he explicitly points out that the word seed in in all those Old Testament instances related to Abraham, that word is singular, not plural. 
It's seed, not seeds. And to make sure we're not missing his point, he comes right out and says that the promises of the Abrahamic covenant were given not to many descendants of Abraham, but rather just to one descendant of Abraham. And then he tells us who that one descendant is. It's Christ. Now Paul's not saying that God intended to give Abraham only one descendant. If you look carefully at the wording, what Paul is saying is that the promises of the Abrahamic covenant were directly spoken to only two people. Abraham and Abraham's seed. They were directly given to one descendant. Now, I'm going to leave that hanging out there like Paul does until we get to the end of the passage where Paul will tell us how it is that people come to be the true offspring of Abraham and thus to share in the promise that God gave to Abraham. The first point that Paul makes as he begins his his case is that the law does not negate the promise. He says, what I am saying is this. So he's trying to get our attention. He's saying, okay, I gave you a little preamble. Now we're getting down to the nuts and bolts. And this is where he lays his argument out about the preeminence and the permanence of this promise. The law that God gave to Moses through Moses did not replace or cancel out the promise that God made to Abraham. And he fortifies this statement with two arguments. First, that the promise came first, before the law, more than 400 years before the law. And then secondly, that the promise depends only on God, not on men. The first thing that that Paul brings to our attention is that the promise came first. God launched his eternal plan to create a people for his own possession by calling out Abram from Mesopotamia when Abram was a pagan. And then God made himself known to Abram. The covenant that defined the terms of the relationship between God and Abram, later called Abraham, father of a multitude of nations, or father of a multitude, the the covenant that defined the terms of the relationship between God and Abraham was a covenant of promise, not a covenant of law. The law came later. The second thing that Paul points out is that the promise was, quote, ratified by God. Now, this is really, really important. It's easy to read those words and just move on. But this is very important. As we saw last week, the Abrahamic covenant promises of land, seed, and blessing were first given by God to Abraham in Genesis 12. But Genesis 15 is the foundational chapter in in which God restated the promise to give Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars of the heavens. And then it says in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. He reckoned his faith as righteousness, credited righteousness to his account on the basis of faith. It was at that point that God justified Abraham forever. And his righteous standing in the eyes of God came only because Abraham believed God's promise. In that same chapter, after God declared Abraham to be righteous, God then ratified his covenant promise 
to Abraham. Now, to ratify a covenant means to make it official, means to formalize it. If you look at the treaties, for instance, at the end of the great wars in history, there's always some kind of ceremony where everybody sits down in a room with a bunch of witnesses and they sign the treaty. And the treaty is set. So ratification is what formalizes or seals the covenant agreement. But the ratification ceremony for God's covenant with Abraham was very unusual and unexpected. God had Abraham take several animals, cut each of the animals into two pieces, and then lay the halves of the animals on opposite sides of a path. In the ancient Near East, this was this in itself was not an unusual setup for a covenant ratification ceremony. The parties to the covenant would walk down the path between the halves of the animals, declaring in effect that if any of those parties to the covenant violated the covenant agreement, they would deserve what had happened to those animals. You can find a great example of that very ceremony in Jeremiah 34, 18, where there are multiple parties. There's God and Israel in the covenant agreement. But what was very, very unusual about the ratification in Genesis 15 is that Abraham didn't walk down that path. God put Abraham into a deep sleep. And then while he was sleeping, the glory of Almighty God in the form of a smoking oven and a flaming torch passed between the halves of the sacrificial animals. Someday I want to do a message just on the smoking oven and the flaming torch. The background of those terms is just amazing. But that was God's formal signature on His ageless covenant. God alone ratified His covenant promises to Abraham while Abe slept. And while Abe, in his sleep, passively watched all of this unfold, he didn't even get to talk in his sleep. He didn't say a word. The point was clear. The one obligating himself to ensure the fulfillment of this covenant was God, not Abraham. It was a unilateral covenant. That means it worked in one direction, not two. It was not a covenant of law. It was a covenant of promise. The promise of the God who cannot lie. And that made the fulfillment of this covenant more certain than the sunrise. That surprising, supernatural, one-sided ratification is what Paul is talking about when he refers in Galatians 3.17 to the covenant previously ratified by God. In stark contrast to that covenant ratification is the ratification ceremony for the law of Moses 400 plus years later. (laughs) In that ceremony, God instructed Moses to gather up those who would be the high priestly line, Aaron and his sons, together with 70 of the elders of Israel, and they came to the foot of Mount Sinai upon which God's glory dwelled at the top. And Moses offered a bunch of sacrifices, and he took the blood of those sacrifices and he sprinkled that blood on the altar, meaning Godward, and he sprinkled that blood on the people. And that is a great picture of the fact that this was a two-way agreement. It was bilateral, not unilateral. 
And then Moses read the law in the hearing of all the people. And guess what the people said? They said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And then they spent the next 1,400 years violating that agreement. Because they're just like us. Paul's point here in Galatians 3.17 is that the law which was ratified by both God and Israel cannot nullify the promise which was ratified only by God. This is exceedingly important as my my brother Bob Deffenbaugh very astutely said in our discussion about this passage earlier this week. He said the promise is only as good as the person and the law is only as good as the performance. You can count on the person, but not the performance of Israel or of us. The Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of promise, not of law. The Davidic covenant, which proclaimed the coming and the eternal reign of the perfectly just and righteous king on the throne of David, is a covenant of promise, not of law. And the new covenant in the blood of our Savior is the covenant of promise, not of law. All three of those enduring covenants depend only on one thing, the faithfulness of the one making the promise. And none of those covenants can be undone by men because they weren't even signed by men. All of them are fulfilled by Christ alone perfectly. And beloved, hear me on this, it is no small point that the one bilateral covenant is also fulfilled only in Christ. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Israel didn't. We don't. We cannot. So Jesus did. And you know what that means? That means that the one major covenant in the Old Testament that started out as bilateral ends up being unilateral just like all the others. It is all God. It is all grace. All of God's perfect plan to create a people worthy to dwell in His presence is fulfilled by God alone in Christ alone. In verse 18, Paul declares in effect that the promise excludes the law when it comes to how men receive the inheritance of the promise, the blessings of the promise. He says that the inheritance God promised to Abraham and to his seed, singular, cannot be based on both law and promise. (laughs) And we'll look at what that inheritance consists of a bit later, but right now he's explaining how you don't get it. Right? In verse 18 he says, if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. It can't be both unilateral and bilateral at the same time. And it is unilateral. It's not a deal between God and Israel. It's a promise made by the living God to Abraham and to his seed, singular. Earlier in chapter 3, we saw that all of our efforts at law-keeping... All of our good works are explicitly excluded from having any part in God's 
gracious verdict of righteousness that justifies us forever in His eyes. In that same way, law-keeping is now explicitly excluded from having any part in determining whether we receive the blessing, the inheritance that God promised to Abraham. So that then sets things up for the big question in verse 19. In verses 19 to 24 of Galatians 3, Paul asks and answers one of the most foundational questions ever posed to mankind. Why the law then? Why did God give the law to Israel in the first place if he knew in advance that law-keeping could never make them righteous and could not secure for them the blessings that belong to his people? And Paul's answer is wonderfully scandalous. It is marvelously outrageous. His answer is that God intended and designed the law to fail miserably as a basis for making men righteous. A critical foundational purpose of God's law is to prove to all men that we are incapable of keeping that very Law. Now that's not some kind of snarky trick from a, from a capricious, uncaring God who likes to watch men squirm. It is the altogether loving, altogether gracious provision from the God who knows that He must break us of ourselves before we'll ever fully and truly turn to Him in dependent faith. Now, before we consider that purpose of the law in further detail, I I need to mention that it's not the only biblical purpose of the law. Many of you know Psalm 1, right? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And that's how you become like a tree firmly planted. We are still supposed to delight in the law of the Lord. And it turns out that that matches up beautifully with this negative purpose of the law that Paul's talking about here. See, the reason that the law is so effective at showing us our inability to please God by law-keeping is precisely because the law is so effective at showing us the character of God the very standard of holiness and righteousness that condemns us, that we utterly fail to meet. But once we have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and have thus been made redeemed image bearers of God, it becomes precious to us to know our God in every way we can know Him, to know Him personally, intimately, rightly, Instead of the negative purpose to break us of our self-dependence, the law now for us who have been justified has an exceedingly and wonderfully positive purpose to show us in very practical ways what God is like, how God acts, what God finds delightful and useful in His image bearers. The knowledge of God's own character and of God's own heart that is reflected in the law is condemnation to the one who is depending on his own goodness to win God's favor. But that very 
same knowledge is beauty and blessedness to the one who believes that Jesus Christ alone has made him or made her the eternal object of God's favor. Those aren't contradictory purposes of the law. In verses 19 and 20, Paul says that the law was ordained through the angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed, singular, should come to whom the promise had been made. He's baiting us again. (laughs) And he says, now a mediator is for one party only, whereas God is one. Now what's all this about a mediator? Well, Steve Lawson says there have been at least 240 different interpretations of what this is talking about. But I'm a simple-minded guy, and I gravitate towards simple explanations that still mesh with the rest of Scripture. And I think this is really not rocket science. I think the idea is that when you've got a bilateral covenant, you need a referee. Go read how many times Moses refereed between God and Israel, crying out to God to don't destroy them. Right? And then after Moses, the priests were mediators. But when you have a unilateral covenant, a promise that depends only on the, on the faithfulness of God, you don't need a mediator. This is not talking about Christ as mediator that is in the New Testament. This is saying this simple statement about unilateral and bilateral covenants. A unilateral covenant doesn't need a mediator. Okay? And that's as far as I go with that. Now, that was sort of a parenthetical thing, but then he gets <laughs> to, the, to the meat of why the law of answering that question. He says at the beginning of verse 19, the law was added because of transgressions. Now, Paul certainly does not mean that the law was added to fix the problem of our transgressions because that's this whole book is arguing against that assertion, right? But there's a fairly unusual prepositional phrase that Paul uses here that in other places is translated as a a purpose or a goal clause. For instance, in Titus 1.5, Paul says to Titus, it was because of this that I left you, Titus, and Crete to set in order the things that remain and to appoint elders in every city. I agree with S. Lewis Johnson's assessment about what Paul means here in Galatians 3.19. The law was given to expose, to smoke out our transgressions. Romans 7, Paul says, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. See, the law is like a big, glorious, wet paint sign. Without the sign, you just walk right past that newly painted wall and you don't even notice it. But because the sign is there, what do you do? Right? You violate the intent of the sign because the sign's there. The law was added to show us what's actually in our hearts. It was added to prove to us that the pursuit of a righteousness that comes from us is futile and doomed. That it serves only to expose our sinful nature and seal our condemnation before a holy and righteous God. See, the law smokes out our sin in order to humble us before God so that 
the law may lead us to Christ. In verses 21 to 24, Paul explains that even though we will never receive the inheritance of Abraham by law-keeping, God nonetheless had one ultimate goal in providing both the promise and the law. As Steve Lawson puts it in the divine plan of God, there is a partnership between promise and law. They work together toward the same endpoint, but in different ways. In verse 21, using his typical question and answer approach, Paul blows away the notion that the God-given purpose of the law somehow contradicts the God-given purpose of the promise. He says, may it never be. See, both law and promise came from God, and God doesn't work at cross-purposes with himself. And then Paul says, if a law had been given, verse 21, Galatians 3, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness, righteousness would indeed have been based on law. See, he's saying it's not just one particular system of law, the law of Moses, that's incapable of moving us from eternal death to eternal life. It's any law. The law of Moses is the best law that men have ever seen because it's the only law that came directly from God. And if any law did exist that could actually impart life, that would be the one. And law-keeping would thus have been a legitimate basis for men to become righteous in the eyes of God. But that's not how it works. That has never been how it works. Instead, man's very best efforts to keep the very best law that has ever existed prove men to be unrighteous. And that is absolutely essential to the reason the law was given in the first place. The law cures us of the false, cursed way of access to God to which we cling tooth and nail. The way of access that we overwhelmingly prefer because we very much enjoy being able to pat ourselves on the back, right? We want at least some credit for a righteous standing in the eyes of God. The law is the altogether loving, altogether gracious provision from God to break us of ourselves so that we will finally trust in His provision of righteousness alone. In verses 22 to 24, Paul says, but the scripture has shut up, that's like locked up in jail, all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who what? Who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up, locked away from the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. That verse, verse 24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. That's one of those go and learn what this means verses. You cannot do without understanding it. If you don't get it, go and learn what it means. Because it's the difference between spiritual death and spiritual life. The law was given to break you of law keeping. What a marvelous irony. 
so that you would come to faith in the one and only lawkeeper, Jesus Christ. The law was not given to make us righteous, but to prove that we are enslaved to sin, chained up to our sin, helpless to free ourselves. We had to be locked up to sin and locked away from faith so that God could show us our desperate need for Jesus Christ, our Savior. But the end point of the law, just like the end point of the promise, has always been to bring us to the Son of God who takes away our sin and covers us with His perfect righteousness. The same way He covered Abraham with His perfect righteousness 3,500 years ago by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The law accomplishes the negative task and the promise accomplishes the positive task. And they both have the same goal. The law exposes, smokes out our need for a righteousness that comes from God and the promise meets our need for a righteousness that comes from God. Now what that means, one thing that that means for us as ambassadors of Christ is that we need to be very vigilant that we are not working against God's evangelistic purpose for the law. When you water down the heinousness of another person's sin to avoid hurting that person or to avoid losing his or her approval, you are working against the critical evangelistic purpose of the law. One of the most cunningly effective anti-gospel movements that Satan has ever launched in the history of the church of Jesus Christ is the present movement among professing Christians to declare that certain sins are not sins. Peter knew and confessed beforehand that it was wrong. It was sin for the Judaizers to demand Gentiles to be circumcised. But instead of boldly calling it sin, he lost his backbone for a little while in Antioch. And the outcome was that all the Jewish Christians in Antioch followed his lead. He had compromised the one true gospel by failing to call a sin a sin. And it was because he was trying to please men instead of God. Don't compromise your gospel to avoid making it a stumbling block. God sorted Peter out through Paul's stern rebuke, but we must not fail to learn from that painful episode in the life of the early church. Minimizing or endorsing sexual immorality is just as opposed to the gospel as minimizing or endorsing a rules-based approach to righteousness. We need to have nothing to do with either of those terrible errors. We need to lay our lives down for the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is life to the dead. There is no other life. Paul wraps up this amazing passage by declaring that the promise given to Abraham is fulfilled entirely in one person and that person is Jesus Christ. Verse 24, Paul said that the law is our God-given tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. Now in verse 25, he says, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. That, That purpose of the law is fulfilled for us who have come to faith. 
There's a radical change that occurs once God has brought us to the end of our man-centered pursuit of righteousness and turned our hearts to trust in Jesus Christ alone. When that miraculous transformation takes place and God does it all, not only are we justified once and for all, righteous, declared righteous in the eyes of God, we are made sons of God. We become, as Paul said in verse 29 of Galatians 3, we become Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. But the key to this promise in all respects is the identity of the one preeminent seed of Abraham. And that identity is the one and only Son of God. Remember that surprising point that Paul made right at the beginning of this passage in verse 16 when he said that the promises were directly spoken by God to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. And he made a big point of the fact that that seed was singular, not plural. At the end of verse 19, Paul said that the law required a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. But God promised that Abraham's seed would be like the stars of the heavens and like the sands of the seashore in number. So how can the seed be both many and just one? This is a marvelous question (laughs) with a marvelous answer. Paul gives us that marvelous answer in verses 26 to 29. He says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with one. You have clothed yourselves with Christ All have been clothed in one. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. And interestingly, even in the Greek, it's singular. You're Abraham's descendant. Heirs, plural, according to promise. Many in one. We are now Abraham's seed in the one preeminent seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. We've been baptized into Christ so that we now find our identity both individually and corporately, not in our old self, but in Him. <laughs> Amazing. When you, when you put this stuff together, I was just thinking this morning, Ephesians 4, about building one another up, right? To what? to the fullness of the stature that belongs to the mature man, singular. And that man is Jesus. We've been clothed with Christ, in Christ, all clothed with one, so that when God looks at us, He sees His own beloved Son. We are now identified with Christ. That's We are members of one body with one head, and that head is Christ. Every good thing that God has made true of us now and in eternity is true of us because it is first true of Jesus Christ and we are found in Him. Don't try to get your hands around that as if you can you know, somehow parse it all out. Embrace it as what God declares to be true of you and of us. There are a couple of cool ramifications to this. One is that in Christ there are no second-born sons. 
There are no third, third-born sons or fourth-born sons or fifth-born sons. There are only first-born sons. There are also no daughters. Now, before your blood pressure starts to go up, let me explain. This is a good thing, not a bad thing. In the ancient Near East, in biblical times, if a daughter came to her father the way the prodigal son did and said, Dad, give me my inheritance, the father would say, Sweetheart, you need to go talk to your husband about that. The only way a daughter received a portion of her father's inheritance is if that father had no sons. Numbers 27. If he did have sons, his inheritance was divided among the sons with a double portion going to the firstborn son. If you, if you take the doula boys and Carrie divides his inheritance among them, he divides it, there are four sons, he divides it into five parts and he gives two parts to Nathan. Justin told me that he would have to find some way around that. (laughs) See, that's not how it works in the household of God. And this is marvelous. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with them, that we may also be glorified with them. To be a a child of God is to be a fellow heir with Christ. And let me ask you this question. What part of his father's estate belongs to the one and only Son of God? All of it. So if you're a joint heir, a fellow heir with Christ, what part of the father's estate belongs to you? All of it. And the only way that works is once we understand what the inheritance is. And this is the most marvelous part of the whole whole thing. What is the inheritance that belongs to the true sons of Abraham? Romans 8, 17 that I just read says that as children of God, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now that doesn't just mean that we inherit what belongs to God. It means we inherit Listen to these words from Psalm 16 and Psalm 73. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Thou dost support my lot. The lot was cast to divide the land up, the inheritance of the land in Israel. (laughs) And David in that psalm is saying, it's not the land. That's not my inheritance. You are my inheritance. He says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage, my inheritance is beautiful to me. In Psalm 73, the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, Yahweh, you are the strength of my heart and you are my portion, my inheritance forever. Back in verse 14 of this passage, Galatians 3, Paul said, Christ became a curse for us in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. See, now we're drilling down to what the promise is all about. 
We receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He equates the blessing of Abraham with the promise of the Holy Spirit whom we receive through faith. The passage was read this morning in the worship. It was one of the first five passages I committed to memory when I was 16 years old. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him, you also, not just us Jews, but you Gentiles, having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a down payment of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. You heard, you believed, and God sealed you with His indwelling Holy Spirit until He takes you home. And that seal... That indwelling is God's down payment of the rest of your inheritance. Now let me ask you this. If the down payment of your inheritance is a person, what do you expect the rest of your inheritance will be? Our inheritance, beloved, is not some limited pool of wealth to be carefully divided up among God's kids. Our inheritance is the overflowing well that has no end because our inheritance is God Himself. And your participation in that glorious inheritance doesn't diminish mine at all, nor does mine diminish yours. There is no lesser inheritance for second-born sons. There is no lesser inheritance for daughters. There is just the inheritance of the only begotten Son of God that God has given to us. There is no advantage in the household of God for a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is only the inheritance that belongs to God's firstborn son, the perfect seed of Abraham, our master, our savior, our king, our redeemer, our eternal treasure. What belongs to him belongs to us in him. Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free man, we who have been baptized into Him and clothed with Him are now and forever one. And by the way, since Christ's own inheritance given to Him by His Father includes us, the people He has redeemed to be His own possession, that means our inheritance includes each other. Isn't that great? Psalm 16, verses 1 through 3. I'll close with this. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in thee. I said to the Lord, Thou art my Lord. I have no good besides thee. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Dear Father, we ask that you would that you would open our eyes if we're, anyone here is having trouble seeing this. We can't, certainly can't get our hands around it, Lord, but oh, Father, make us, make us to embrace it, make us to bask in it, make us to rejoice in it, in this amazing realization that as sons of Abraham through faith, we are inheritors of the living God for eternity. We will dwell in your midst and you in our midst forever. You will cause us to stand before your presence holy and spotless and blameless, covered and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And nothing and no one can ever take that away from us who have trusted only in him. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who has not 
believed only in Jesus Christ, that that would happen this very day, that this would be the day of salvation, that that boy or girl, that man or woman might be become part of this blessed unity of those who belong to Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name.